Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight, and on, as on most nights, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm excited that we're going to have an expert in the prosecutorial area of law enforcement tonight. So uh, I guess I'll let you introduce him, Bill. Absolutely. I just wanted to say, Phil, while I have you still here, is that... Uh, your hair looks perfect, you know. You like you like good. that guy in the in the song Were- Werewolves of London. His hair was perfect. <laughs> well, I owe it all to my gel. I wait. Yeah, I think you do, man. That's straight out of Brooklyn hair. Your, your hair is just perfect. Anyway, tonight, as Phil was alluding to, we have legendary retired Brooklyn Assistant District Attorney, and he wore many, many other hats. I don't want to go through his whole resume. But just just know that in 1992, he was the chief of the uh, homicide squad in the Brooklyn DA's office. And if you're from other parts of the world, other parts of the country, you know, they say Manhattan makes it and Brooklyn takes it. And I'd like to introduce to you uh, Michael Vecchioni. Mike, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bill. And and Phil, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure. I really am. I was looking forward to this all day long. So, um and, and I'm straight out of Brooklyn myself. Uh, there you up, go. Born, raised, grew up there, and um, and uh, and went back and uh, and and spent 30 years in the Brooklyn DA's office. Two different stints, but um, but I uh, I'm a Brooklyn boy from uh, you know through and through. So um, that that's fantastic. And you know yeah. we wanted to have uh, a legal expert because we've been of course covering the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case. Right. And. You know, there is so much gray area in this, but if you're a conservative or I would say a Republican, you see this as a slam dunk and you ask questions like, why was this case ever even brought to trial? And if you're a a, a left winger, a a liberal or a, a Democrat, you think this is a miscarriage of justice that he got off. And that's, you know, that's the divide we have in this country, I think. I think we just think totally differently. Uh, and But the, the constant has to be the rule of law. And that's what's scary when people get away from the rule of law and they start thinking that politics should rule the rule of law. And to me, anyway, that's a really scary thing. Mike, comments on that? Well, I think you're hit it right on the head. I think the problem today is that um, that the divide is getting wider as, uh, as we speak. And um, 
And those who are on the right, or as you said, the Republicans or the conservatives, um, are are basically tied to the rule of law. They they say, you know, if you are um, if you follow the law, if you're if you're uh, you know if if you follow the Constitution, and um, then it's a simple. All of the answers are simple. But on the left, they don't look at it that way. They think that the Constitution is an ever-evolving, um, you know, document. And um, and there may be situations where the Supreme Court has interpreted certain things um, differently at different times of, of uh, you know, in history. But the Constitution is, is essentially not changing and will never change. So um, if you can't accept that, well, then, you know what, maybe you need to live somewhere else because um, that's what we live under in this country and have um, you know, and have for all of the years since that document was uh, was was put out there and the Bill of Rights was signed. And, um, you know, and many people, Bill and Phil, died for that uh, for that Constitution and to make sure that the rule of law is followed. Um, you know, my dad was a World War II veteran, one of the greatest generation and um, uncles and cousins uh, fought in various the various wars. And, um, you know, that's what they fought for. So. Um, I, I think that what has happened is that we have we have let we all of us have let politics take over almost all of our lives in this country. Everything is seen through a political spectrum. And that's not the way it was when I was growing up. It was not the way it was even 10 years ago. But um, but now it's it's politics politics, politics, and everything is seen either left or right. And, and it's, it's just, um, it's, it's horrendous. I have to tell you guys, I was a big, I, I listen, I, I worked in the DA's office for a long time. When I wasn't there, I was in my own practice for 10 years. And every day I would have the newspapers on my desk. Every day I would read the times and the news and the post and Newsday and the Wall Street Journal. It was part of what I had to do in order to make a living as a private attorney and to do my job in the DA's office. Um, and I would read everything. Now I can barely even pick up the newspaper because I can't stand um, the way that everything is portrayed through that prism of politics, as opposed to uh, calling things right down the middle. And, um, and it's, it's a very, very bad way of, of having to live. And, and, you know, I don't like it. I don't know if it'll ever change. Um, uh, as long as I'm alive, but uh, I, I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Well, you know, Mike, one of the most pure things is is what we the whole this whole case was, and that's justification, correct, and the right to defend yourself. And there's states that are already in California. They're telling people not to resist robbers. I mean, where that is that that is nuts. It's like insane. let them invade your home. You know, are they going to change this law that you're not going to be able to defend yourself in your own home? I mean, I, I, they, this is how nutty these people are. Exactly. I, I don't think that'll. I don't think it'll ever change. I really don't. I think that that there are there are enough people who have sense to uh, to hold back. You know that mob mentality, which is listen. You got to let people do what they want to do to you, and you can't fight back. That's just not something that is ingrained in a human being. You know, the thing is, right. you're always, always looking to protect yourself and your family. I mean, can you imagine 
you're in your home and, and someone is a home invasion, your kids are upstairs, and what are you going to do? You're going to sit back and just simply say, oh, yeah, and by the way, my kids are up there in case you want to steal one of them, or, you know, my, my wife's jewelry is in this drawer if you want to take it. No one's, that's not going to happen. So, uh, and people, if it ever got to the point where that was taken away from us, people will go, will voluntarily go to jail defending their family and defending the right to live happily with liberty. They, they will do that. And, you know, um, this kid and this case was so clear in terms of it being a self-defense case that um, in Brooklyn, when I was in charge of charging, uh, you know, their trial division, I was in charge of the rackets division. I was in charge of the homicide uh, division. That case never would have even gone to a grand jury. Never, because it was so clear cut. I mean, the kid got hit in the head with a, with a skateboard. He had a gun pointed at him. He got chased and he was kicked by different people during the course of, of that, that uh, you know, that run that he made. Um, what was he supposed to do? Just lay there and cover his head with his hands and hope that hope that they didn't kill him? No, he couldn't. Crazy. He it's nuts. Philly, I know you're dying to say a few words before I play some of um, Tucker Carlson's interview, but I don't want you just sitting there with your perfect hair. So I know you got some a few comments. <laughs> well, I do have a few comments, Bill. Mike, we not only share heritage from Brooklyn, but my father was a World War II Marine and both my grandfathers, World War One. One of my grandfathers was only here about six months from Italy and uh, was uh, in the Army in World War One, But going back to uh, the case, the Rittenhouse case, I think he was very fortunate that there was a lot of video of all, actually almost everything that took place in the, uh, in the you know, the self-defense part of the, uh, the whole incident was actually captured on video. Had that not been, I don't know if we would have wound up with this result. I think there was just such a push to try and find this kid guilty. And there was such an outrage. And, you know, you had Black Lives Matter getting in on it when there was only white people involved yeah. in the actual assaults and, and you know, uh, Rittenhouse being uh, white. And I think they just took on, you know, they wanted a continuation of the riots that took place after George Floyd. And they wanted to continue that. But I think the fact that he was very fortunate that most of the uh, incident was captured on video, if not actually every minute of it. And he did have that little bump in the road. I'm sure we're going to talk about it with his first attorneys. But uh, I think that his second attorney, uh, who led him through the trial. Uh, they prepared him well. He did excellent in his testimony. And we talked about it before we went on the air. And uh, Bill, I guess you got a video you want to play, so I don't want to hold you up. Yep. Let's get into that. Dishonest, how thoroughly and intentionally dishonest the media coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse story turned out to be. All of it was a lie. Rittenhouse was not a white supremacist. He was never in a militia. He never crossed state lines with a firearm. The protest in Kenosha was not peaceful. It was a riot, chaotic and violent. Many of the rioters, by the way, carried guns. Rittenhouse was hardly alone. Rittenhouse didn't go to Kenosha looking for trouble. His father lived there. Rittenhouse himself worked as a lifeguard in Kenosha. On August 25th of last summer, Rittenhouse went downtown to stand guard over a car lot. Here's the context. The night before, police in Kenosha had done nothing as the mob burned businesses, including another car lot, all the way to the ground. So the business owner needed Kyle Rittenhouse's help. He was looking to a 17-year-old for help, if that gives you some perspective on how bad things were, and he asked for it. As Rittenhouse stood there, rioters threatened his life. Then they attempted to kill him. 
In the end, Rittenhouse shot three attackers as he tried to run to the safety of the police. A number of media outlets claimed the men Rittenhouse shot were black. In fact, all three were white and all three had serious criminal records. We could go on. Again, the media coverage was, from beginning to end, a tapestry of lies. If you watched the trial last week, you know that. But what about Kyle Rittenhouse himself? What is he like? Apart from his testimony in court, few Americans have ever heard his voice. Over the next hour, we're going to let Kyle Rittenhouse speak for himself. You can make up your own mind what you think. But before we start, one observation, which you can't resist making. It's hard to ignore the yawning class divide between Kyle Rittenhouse and his many critics in the media. Rittenhouse comes from the least privileged sector of our society. During high school, he worked as a janitor and a fry cook to help support his family. Last year, he got into college at Arizona State, and he's very proud of it. In the world Kyle Rittenhouse grew up in, it is not a given that kids go to college. It's not even close. During the course of our long conversation, Kyle Rittenhouse struck us as bright, decent, sincere, dutiful, and hardworking. Exactly the kind of person you'd want many more of in your country. He's not especially political. He never wanted to be the symbol of anything. Kyle Rittenhouse just wanted to keep violent lunatics from setting fire to cars. In the America he grew up in, that was considered virtuous. So if Rittenhouse seems a little bewildered at points during our interview, thinking back over the last year and what happened to him, that's probably why. A lot of the things he assumed were true about this country turned out not to be true at all. So in that way, he speaks for many of us. Here's Kyle Rittenhouse. So tell me, Kyle, how you wound up in Kenosha that day. Um, well, it actually started on August 24th. Um, I was working my job as a lifeguard at the RecPlex in Kenosha County. And then the riots were still going on and a curfew was implied. So I went to Dominic Black's house and I stayed the night over there and saw the videos of the riots and the arson going on. Um, what did you think of it? It was upsetting because Kenosha is my community. Um, and I just was upset seeing my community up in flames. Yeah, I bet you were. Um, so you're at your friend's house that night. You've come back from working as a lifeguard. Yes. And then you decide to go in. First, you're cleaning up graffiti, correct? Uh, yes. So we say the night August. I say the night August 24th. We wake up in the morning and we're talking. We're like, let's go. Let's go help our community. Let's go see what we can do. And we ended up at Ruther Central High School where we were cleaning graffiti for a couple hours. And then we met with the owners of car source and we often protect their business from fires, making sure the rest of their other two properties didn't get burned down like they did the night prior. And they agreed. Um, we came back, we went back to Dominic's house and um, hung out there for a little bit. And then we went to uh, car source to help protect the property and make sure it didn't set on fire again. So you get there. What do you see? Uh, when I get there, um, I see in the beginning, the morning of Ruther Central, I see just spray paint everywhere. I see smoke coming from the car source that was burnt down, and it was quite upsetting because that was somebody's business that got destroyed. Yeah. So you said to the people who own the car lot, I want to protect your cars, and they said, yes, please. Um, I, I said, hey, if you... I, I, asked if they needed any help and they said yes if you can where were the police i don't i don't i'm not sure really because i they have a hard job um 
for sure. But I didn't really think they got the support they needed. The National Guard should have been called August 23rd, but the city of Kenosha failed their the community. Um, the governor, Tony Evers, failed the community, and there should have been a lot more resources to help with that. That's for sure. So um, you've been criticized for carrying a firearm into the scene, but it's obvious from the tape that a lot of people, you were not the only one with a firearm. There are rioters with firearms. Was that obvious to you? Yes. So do, you saw other people with guns. I, I did. There was a lot of people um, on bo- like there were rioters with firearms. Um, I remember one very distinctly. Joshua Zeminski was walking around with a pistol in his hand all that night with um, Joseph Rosenbaum. Where did you first see Rosenbaum? The first time I saw Rosenbaum was the first time he threatened to kill me. It was at the corner of the car source lot that I was at primarily that night. And uh, I was asking people if they needed medical. And he came up to me and Ryan Balch and he said, if I catch any of you MFers alone, I'm going to effing kill you. Had you ever seen him before? I have not. So you've never seen this guy. He walks up and threatens to kill you out of nowhere. Yes. It was it was quite shocking. I was like, why would somebody threaten to kill me? I'm just asking if people need help on both sides. I was I was there just to help anybody that needed it. And shockingly, the only people I helped that night were rioters. What kind of sense did you get from Rosenbaum? I mean, that sounds strange. When he threatened to kill me, I was like, what the heck just happened? Um, I've never, never, nobody's ever threatened to kill me up until that point. And I was like, that's not something you say to somebody. How long after that was it that he tried to grab your rifle? It was about an hour and a half later. And then there was actually a second time he said to the group, um, he, he said, this is the second time he threatened to kill everybody. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to effing kill you. I'm going to cut your hearts out. You effing N words. Cut your hearts out. Yes. Did any of the rioters try and calm him down or stop him? What I noticed is the rioters were trying to like, they were like disassociating with him because he was like spewing the N word around and they just didn't seem to want to have anything to deal with him, the rioters. So he comes, he tries to grab your rifle. He gets shot. You decide at that point, unless I'm misremembering you're, you want to go turn yourself into the police. Yes. Um, after. I just want to say that, you know, uh, you know, the response to this by some of the national media is baffling to me because I, I saw uh, particularly egregious to me is Chris Cuomo, who said, oh, just a fist fight, uh, uh, you know. And meanwhile, you know, more people, and, and Michael, you know it, and Phil, you know it, more people are killed in this world with hands and feet by any than any other means. That doubt. is the weapon that kills more people. So for him to say, oh, it's just a fight, like he's this big, tough guy, you know? And when you're in the midst of a riot, the chaos and the the violence going around you, you know, I don't think you want to be there, no matter, you know, who you are. You don't want to be in the midst of that riot. But the way this was reported is just, is just incredible. 
you know, just incredible. You know, Bill, it's easy for these uh, celebrity newscasters to say what they say and to, to cast aspersions on a kid like this and make little or light of the fact that, that he was in the middle of this riot because they're never alone. I mean, they're always with bodyguards or an entourage. And, um, you know, so uh, and if they're not their home in their home with a uh, that has a fence around it, you know, so. So it's 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 not they, they don't live in a real world, never been in a real world. So, you know, this is a this was a very, very, very volatile and dangerous situation this kid was in. And uh, and to have somebody say to you that first I'm going to kill you and then I'm going to cut your heart out is um, is not something which you take very lightly, particularly when everybody else around them is carrying a, a, a firearm and weapons. So um, so I don't I don't. You know, I don't make light of it, and I think that uh, they in the media should not make light of it either. But it goes back to what we talked about before. It's just simply this divide. Um, if you feel that you are on the left, then you have to say this kid, you know, was wrong. If if you're on uh, in on the right, well, then you say he's right, but you happen to be correct by saying that. You know, so um, it it it's a it's a very troubling thing. And the, and the other part of this is is that there are a lot of people in this country who don't get the full picture because they don't watch anything but ABC, NBC, and CBS, you know, because they that's what they're used to. And you read day after day after day about certain stories don't even make it onto the news report for a particular evening because they're trying to shape the, the way people think in this country. And, um, and I, I'm sure that in every one of those stations, as well as MSNBC or CNN, they repeated over and over again about how this kid crossed state lines with a gun. A total lie. 100 percent bullshit. 100%. And, and it was net. And, and, and the trial proved that it was a lie. So, you know, you, they're, they're, you hope that 12 people who sat in that jury box and listened to this story would get it right. And they did get it right. And that's what we have to continue to hope for in this country. Mike, I just want to make a point about now when we uh, us three in law enforcement will know about the way the law works with regard to intent. Now, most people that don't have any idea about law enforcement or how how the jury system works or laws. If you look at what his intentions were now, there was a interview before any of the incident took place where the violence occurred, where he said what he was doing there. He was going there to put out fires. He was going to give first aid if necessary. And they asked him why he had the firearm. And he said, I have the firearm just for my own protection. Right now, the second part of his intent is, is that after he was involved in this horrific violent activity where you said earlier they tried to hit him with a skateboard in the head or they did hit him. One they guy did. was going, uh, giving him a, a flying drop kick and right. all of these different things. They tried to remove the gun from what did he do afterwards? He went to turn himself into the police Correct. and he was maced by the police. That's the thing. So what is his intention? If his intentions were bad and he sh went there to shoot and kill somebody, wouldn't he try and run away and go home and, and you know, hide the weapon? No, he went right to the police. He knew that what he did was possibly going to be, you know, criminal and he needed to explain it and he wanted to, you know, he was going to take responsibility for it. That says so much to me about this case that his intentions weren't criminal in nature. His intentions, he had good intentions. Listen, he was in a dangerous situation being in the middle of all this rioting and stuff, but the kid had good intentions. And then when the things went sideways, 
He did fire his weapon. He went to try and turn himself in. And then what he did was after he was maced, he went to the next police station. He In the interview, if, uh, if we saw the whole thing, he says the police station in Kenosha was closed. He said they weren't accepting visitors. Visit. They had it barricaded because of the riots. Right. So he went to the next local police station and he turned himself in. So I think that said you a know, lot about Phil his and, and Mike, one of the things I just want to bring up that uh, I find also very disturbing is that all these democratic cities, they hold back the police. They refuse to allow the police to do their jobs. And in New York City, but Blasio, let's give a soft touch. He doesn't let cops wear their riot helmets. He doesn't want them to make arrests. And they, they, they you, you saw them destroy City Hall Park last summer. Exactly. Just totally, it looked like a war zone. And when they said, all right, we had they enough. They actually took it over for a period of time. Too. Yeah, yeah, but when they said they had enough, they took it back in about 15 minutes. Exactly. So yeah. the police have the ability to do that. But these politicians, they're letting rioters, and I riot, not protesters, rioters, they're letting them vent, and they're destroying the city. I find that disturbing. Well, if you, you know, Phil, I'm sure you remember the Crown Heights riots back in the, uh, you know, back under Dinkins, Dinkins administration. Yankel Rosenbaum case, yes. Yeah, the Yankel Rosenbaum case. But when the riots began, and day after day after day passed, and, and people would, and they, they were interviewing Dinkins, and Dinkins, the mayor then, said, well, what? why are you letting this happen? He said, oh, you know, we're trying to let them exhaust themselves, let them get tired, they'll burn themselves out. Well, it didn't happen, because day one turned into day two, day two turned into day three, and during that time, Poor Yankel Rosenbaum, who had nothing to do with anything, a visitor from Australia, is set upon by a mob and he's killed and murdered on the street. On the street. So if Dinkins had allowed the police department to go in there and, and suppress that riot on the first day, I believe Mr. Rosenbaum would still be alive right now. And that's what has happened, happened last summer. And, you know, talking about de Blasio, after this verdict, he puts a statement out and says, Something has to be done. There has to be an answer to it. We can't let this let this go unanswered. What is that? That's an incitement to riot, as far as I'm concerned. And it, um, you know, and and it, it's it's disgusting, quite frankly. Um, you know, and you he know said, "Now is the time." Too right exactly. after the verdict. Now exactly. is the time. In other words, like you know, now we need to to rally and mob and loot. That's that's basically he was sending out a a, a signal, so to speak. Exactly. Thank God it didn't get. I mean, there was protests in Manhattan on the Brooklyn Bridge. They did do right. some, you know, the destruction of some property vehicles and stuff like that. But I don't think it was what the, the level that we had last summer. No, well, Phil, didn't. you know, as the mainstream media says, there was a dog whistle. I love when they use that expression. Oh, so all of us conservatives, we respond to dog whistles. Is right. that it? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. You know, I have to tell you something, guys. I, I've been alive a long time and I've been doing this a long time. I never heard that term before this 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 past few months. I know, I didn't even know what that was. I yeah. had to kind of think about it and then realize, oh, dog whistle is that only certain animals, so to speak, dogs can hear the message. Right. Um, and but I didn't even didn't even think. Right. So the mainstream media is saying with dogs, you know, and this is one of my favorite uh, broadcasters. I want to play a little bit of um, <laughs> what he has to say. Fredo, it's Fredo. Fredo. Attorney for Kyle Rittenhouse helped make that call. Counselor, appreciate you taking the opportunity. Good evening. How difficult a call was it? 
you know, we, myself and Corey Shire obviously went round and around with it. Um, we felt as though we had a witness, a client who could tell his story. He was articulate, fairly intelligent. He didn't have any damage. Um, he didn't have prior convictions or never been in trouble. Um, he was a police cadet, fire cadet, pro-social. Um, we thought he could do it. There was obviously a lot of work that went into it. Um, we did a mock jury, and the mock jury were the, the 12 people did not hear Kyle's story. He scored much worse than the people who did hear his story. And that was subject to cross-examination by a trained ex-prosecutor. And that made the decision, you know, I don't want to say easy, but it made it the right call. And in Wisconsin, when you have to put yourself in the feet or the shoes of that person, he needs to tell his story. And we felt strongly about that from the beginning. From the first time I met Kyle Rittenhouse when he was in custody in the McHenry County Detention Center, I talked to him about that. And he was willing to do that mm. um, and wanted to. Does he wish he hadn't gone that night? Does he think he did anything wrong? hundred times over. You know, I've had talks. You know, Kyle said if I had to do it all over again and had any idea something like this could happen, I wouldn't do it. You know, and that is not, I, I want to be clear, that is not regret for what he did that night under those circumstances. Hindsight is always 2020, if not better. And he he didn't want to kill anybody. And he was left with a terrible choice, and he exercised that choice, which was found to be lawful. Does he think he did anything wrong? Legally, no. Morally? He wishes he didn't have to do it. But, you know... And I, this case, as you said, has been so political, so yes or no. The, the narrative that came out was not the truth. At trial, it did come out. He had lived in that community. He had worked in that community. His family, his dad, his grandmother, aunts, uncles lived in that community. He spent a lot of time there. He went down there earlier in the day to help clean up graffiti, do those things. And when he was asked to help out at car source, he went. And, you know, so much was made that he wasn't an EMT. He did help people there. Nobody was harmed by Kyle Rittenhouse putting bandages or gauze on. And he went around seeking to help people. Um, they wanted to portray him as a liar and, a, you know, fireman wannabe. Um, I don't think that's what it was. Um, but that was the narrative they needed to put forth to try and get a conviction on Kyle Rittenhouse. Does he have concerns that maybe he could have done something else? Maybe he didn't have to fire. Maybe he could have fought. Maybe he could have gotten you know, back on his feet. Does he ask himself those questions? I, you know, I don't. As to Mr. Rosenbaum, and that was really the count that I think set up this whole case. Um, you know, I, I told a story earlier, it's hundred percent true. The first time I met Kyle, I asked him about Rittenhouse. I hadn't seen that video and I asked him how big Rosenbaum was. 
And he said to me, he goes, he was over six feet and 250 pounds. Obviously, that was wrong. Yep. That was his. <laughs> Did you see Cuomo? Yep. <laughs> the, one, the one time that he had a chance to say, oh, you know, he's wrong. That's He loved that. He but jumped he just, on that. Yep. Like he was small, so you were lying. Perception. You know? yeah. As this individual who was thrown this bag, who he'd seen earlier in the evening, was coming at him. And, you know, he one, as I said, he had no duty to retreat. But two, Mr. Ritten, Mr. Rosenbaum could have stopped at any time and none of this would have stopped, would have happened. You know, his judgment in running after a person, as he yelled on the tape, and it was clearly visible, you aren't going to do S M F -er. And he believed Kyle didn't have the guts to do it. He was wrong and he paid with his life. Well, I don't know that it's guts. Uh, I think it's I, I think it's bad judgment. It was justified under the law, uh, but I think it's hard. And that's why I asked the question. It's hard to believe that somebody chasing you uh, is going to beat you uh, to death. He's got, you know, something he's got to be kidding. How many people during the riots last summer did we see beaten to death? Without a doubt. And this Without idiot knows that. And he knows it, but he, he, he just, I, I, it's outrageous that he could even say that. Bill, you know? the case we, that Phil and I were talking about before with Yonkel Rosenbaum he was chased and beaten to death. He right. wasn't. He was beaten to death. So you know, um, it's a. Um, it, it's this guy Cuomo is has a has an agenda, and um, and clearly that was part of his agenda to say those things. You know. You know, so during the Michael Brown riots, he, about early. It's all politics. No, yep. but during the Michael Brown riots, uh, was I was in Missouri, I believe. Yes. He was out there jacking up the crowd, Cuomo. Yep. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I have it hard to believe someone could be beaten to death. What are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, th this guy Rosenbaum supposedly had a mental health history, uh, all different kinds of things. And, you know, there was a, a picture of him. I think you had it up before, Bill. He was enraged. You know, uh, Kyle looks like a mild-mannered guy, and he was probably very scared. And I think that he felt the threat was real, and that's why he did what he did. You know, I mean, he, he didn't have many options at that point. He no. was being surrounded. He was being chased like a dog. Uh, Cuomo obviously never been in any kind of situation like that. It's easy for him to say that, but bad judgment? No, I think it was actually the only choice he had to survive, to stay alive, was to do what he did. You know that the saying about it's better to be judged by twelve than carried by six. Absolutely. That is exactly what Rittenhouse was thinking about. Not exactly those words, but he was saying, "Listen, if I don't do this, I'm a dead man." You know, and um, uh, who who we at this point, you know, it's all second guessing by these guys. They weren't in that position. But you're correct, Bill, about and and Phil about that videotape. If there was no videotape, we would be having a different discussion today. We would be I saying, you know, how that, could right. the jury do this? How could they, you know, how could they convict a guy, you know, who was trying to protect his own life? And um, and and I'd like to ask Cuomo how he would feel if a guy came up behind him with a skateboard and pounded on his head. And Rittenhouse last night talked about how he got hit in the back of the head on his neck. Listen, it doesn't take much to to cause a a, a permanent injury to your head. And a skateboard is not, you know, a piece of plywood or a piece of balsa wood. It's it's got some heft to it. Uh, and aside from that, you got the guy who had the gun who admitted 
I pointed a gun right at him. And, and, you know, and he got lucky that, that, that right Rittenhouse didn't hit him in his chest. He hit him in his arm as opposed to the other two guys. So, um, it, it, that was also good. captured on video, which was very fortunate for exactly. Kyle. And he, he exactly. almost had to admit because you could see the gun pointing down at his head. Yep. It was very clear. So, uh, and I think that their case really started to fall apart at that point, the prosecution's case, that is. And if the prosecutor actually was seen putting his head in his hands when exactly. he admitted, yeah, I was pointing the gun at him before he fired the shot. So, I mean, listen, they were armed with, obviously, weapons. You had a, a Glock handgun. You know, what was this kid supposed to do? So yeah. I, I think it's kind of clear. He he did what he had to do. He What he yeah. had to do. Maybe not you what know, he wanted to do, but what he had to do. You and, know, I uh, think that we would all maybe, you know, I'm not going to say all because I don't know, but I I think that his biggest mistake was going there. Oh, yeah, yeah uh, I agree. I you agree. know, if, yeah. if it was my son, he was seven, I would say, you're not going anywhere near that, you know. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That was a bad mistake, but going there and then, you know, Apparently he, the gun was legally possessed and, uh, you know, probably going into a riot zone with an AR-15 isn't probably a smart thing to do, uh, no. judgment wise. Well, just think about, think about, you know, talk about the, the charge with the rifle. Think about how bad this prosecution was when they charged him with possession, illegal possession of a weapon, when all they had to do in the office, in their office, was measure the gun that was recovered and determine that what the size of it was, they probably did it and charged them anyway. But how do you charge somebody when you know that it's not illegal to carry that particular weapon? It just summed up to me the, you know, the lack of quality to that, that prosecution and how it was simply a political, a political persecution as opposed to a prosecution. You know, Mike, one of the things I found most egregious was in the summation and uh, the prosecutor was saying, all Rosenbaum did was kick over um, a portable bathroom. All he did was take a vehicle and put it in the middle of the street, which was set on fire. Right. All he did was set on fire. And I'm like, he's talking about a B felony, and he's yeah. acting like it's no big deal. It's no big deal. You Listen, know? this guy, and you know, the picture that they showed, or that you showed before, Bill, of this guy Rosenbaum. He may not be tall, but he did look like he was built, well-built. Yes. And he looked like, as you said before, he was in a rage. And, and you know, and, and having, you know, he had all these guys behind him when he went up to this kid, this, this young kid, and said, you know, I, I'm going to basically, if I see you again, I'm going to kill you. So, you know, he had to have some screw loose. And that's the kind of guy, you know, that you don't want to mess with in uh, on the street. And. Look, Rittenhouse did, in my opinion, what he had to do in order to survive and go home at some point. You know, 100%. He, he said he said he was going to kill him and cut his heart out. And I think the fact that Kyle described him as being 6'2", 250, or whatever he did say, I think that because he was such a menacing figure at that time, that's what he, you know, what, when he was recalling in his memory, that's what he saw. He saw this big... I you know, an enraged lunatic coming at him. So that's why he described it that way. And I've had that with complainants a million times where, you know, they're inconsistent about things when, when they first start to describe it because they're scared, they're terrified. So I guess, you know, it kind of makes sense, the whole thing. Exactly. You know, folks, if you're, not, uh, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up. Uh, and if you... Um, Need some merchandise for Christmas to give for presents. 
We have a police off the cuff, coffee mugs, uh, sweatshirts, shirts. Uh, go on our website, policeoffthecuff.com. I know this is a highly charged political case, but it really shouldn't be. Um, and it's unfortunate that we're so split in this country that two sides think so, so differently yes. about, about this case. And, um, you know, we've even, we spoke about it off camera before, uh, Jerry Nadler, who is like uh, a big shot in the House of Representatives for the Democrats, he's talking about sicking the feds on uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. Getting well, the FBI. Haven't they weaponized the FBI enough this year already? <laughs> what what he said was even more disturbing to me. He said he wanted the Department of Justice to review the jury's decision. The jury's decision is sacrosanct. Once the jury says you are not guilty, it's not reviewable. There's a thing called double jeopardy in this country. So there is no place that the Justice Department can go. If he wanted the Justice Department and the FBI to look at it to see if there were civil rights violations, well, that would have turned out to be a zero, too, because it's got to be a life taken under the color of law. Rittenhouse was a civilian defending himself. There is no civil rights violation in that situation. So um, it, it was it, it, Nadler. Nadler is an idiot, quite frankly, just an idiot. <laughs> Before he came out with that, I said it on the show that we did right after the verdict. We did a show later that night in the verdict, and I said I could foresee the feds trying to go after him for civil rights violation. Whether or not they'll be successful, I think there's no chance of that, no, but no they will definitely be looking into this and trying to figure out a way or a loophole just to gain political favor, obviously. I mean, but again, like you said, uh, Nadla, that statement is scary. It's not only stupid, but it's scary. You cannot look at a decision of a jury that has, you know, they ruled. And once they ruled, that's it. It's over. This is the system we have in place. You're being judged by a, a, a jury of your peers. And I think that we've spoke about our criminal justice system in the United States in the past. And it's probably flawed in some ways, but it's probably the best in the world that we have. You get the best shake. I mean, that threshold that has to be met beyond a reasonable doubt. To me, that's very, very powerful. And I think that that's a great standard that that bears what's going to happen in a criminal case. And obviously, beyond a reasonable doubt wasn't met in this case. And I think that, you know, based on what the attorney said in that interview with uh, with Chris Cuomo, that in the uh, mock juries, he did much, he scored, scored much higher points when he did testify. And I think the fact that he was articulate, he was controlled. Uh, you know, there were times during the, uh, I, I actually watched the testimony where the prosecutor was badgering him, asking him the same question. Didn't you mean to kill? Didn't you mean to kill? Exactly. Didn't you mean to kill? And he kept responding and saying, no, I meant to stop the threat, which I thought was fantastic. And I was wondering why, his attorney wasn't objecting to that, saying that the question, you know, objection, Your Honor, the question was asked and answered. But I think it was let it was left to go because it painted a picture in the jury's mind that, you know, this this attorney was actually badgering, uh, this prosecutor was actually badgering the witness. Oh. And I think at some point the judge, you know, did ask him to move along. But it was really, uh, it was not a good display of prosecution in that no, case. It was, it was actually, you know, talking from the point of view of what I did for a 30 years of my life, it was um, it was embarrassing, quite frankly. It really was. And, um, you know, the idea that he suggested that um, 
that there was something that the jury should hold against Rittenhouse, the fact that he didn't say anything after he was arrested, that in and of itself is a constitutional violation. The case should have ended right there. That mistrial, in my opinion, should have been granted. Jeopardy would have attached. That would have been it. You cannot suggest that somebody remaining silent, you can't attribute bad motives to that or that, you know, you did it because you're guilty and didn't want to say anything. That's what he was trying to do with that whole thing. It was a very, very bad situation. The other thing was he was instructing, the prosecutor was instructing the jury on the law. I, I have never heard anything like that before. In Brooklyn, and listen, I'm not going to lie, there are people who try to, you know, steal a base here or there by saying something, you know, the judges have to be on their toes and sharp and stop the prosecutor or the defendant, defense attorney, from instructing the jury. That's their job. And then the next thing they have to do, if it does get through, is they have to turn to the jury and say, you have to disregard what you heard. That is not, the, the, he's not the person to, to give the law to you. I am the only person to give the law. So it, it was a very, very, I, I just thought, a, a terrible display. And it made prosecutors in general look look very bad, I thought. And, um, you know, it a, a, an embarrassment is really what it was. Um, Mike, yeah. should the prosecutors be uh, sanctioned by the Bar Association for basically Ill illegal conduct during the prosecution? Let's just say that they could be. They could be. If the judge refers that Fifth Amendment violation about suggesting that silence is, is to be used against them, that in and of itself could very well be bring sanctions against the prosecutor. The same thing with the instruction of the law. I mean, there is prosecutorial misconduct throughout that entire trial. And um, and it was it was, you know, it was blatant. So we don't know what the judge is going to do. The judge, you know, reserved decision on the on the the motions to uh, declare a mistrial. But he may very well now refer to the disciplinary committee in, in that county or in the state. The uh, you know, the things that the prosecutors did. And uh, and I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be uh, against him doing that. You know, one thing I want to say, Phil, before the reason that I believe this, the defense attorneys did not object when the prosecutor kept asking the question over and over again is twofold. One, he told you that he did. He meaning Rittenhouse did great in the mock trial. So they knew that he would not go. He was not going to be intimidated or he wasn't going to fold and change his answer. That was one. And two, the other one, the, the one that you hit on, and I think the most important, is that it told the jury, look at what they're doing to this guy. They don't like answer his first answer, so they're going to ask it again. They don't like the second one. They're going to ask it again. And, they, and, and that's got to tell these people that they're just looking to try to trip them up so that they can get an answer, that the prosecutors can get an answer that they can make hay of in the um, – you know, in their summation. And, and I think that's what they were doing. I think I agree it, with you 100%, Mike. I, I agree with very you. Very clear, you know. You know, uh, Phil, let's go to a quick commercial here. <laughs> Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. 
Excellent read, Phil. And Joe Very also good, has his Phil. own podcast, Allegedly Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's a good man. We've had him on many times. He's uh, he's quite the character. And uh, good luck on his on your podcast, Joe, if you're listening. Absolutely. You know, one of the things, uh, Mike, and I wanted to ask you, um, yes. now that Kyle Rittenhouse has beaten these charges criminally, there's going to be potentially numerous lawsuits from both ways. Right. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse could be sued by the family of, of well, I don't know if you can call them victims, because uh, I don't think the judge allowed the prosecution to call them victims. That's right. But they still potentially could sue. And also, Kyle Rittenhouse could sue the mainstream yeah. media, uh, who lied, who it's proven lied. And the most egregious thing before I forget is MSNBC following the jury bus. To me, someone should have got locked up for that. They may that, still. It's so horrendous. They may still. Now, the judge said that he has that, that an open investigation, uh, that, the, that he, he asked that an investigation be opened into that. But that was clearly an attempt at jury intimidation. There's no, no doubt about it. And, um, and MSNBC and NBC News should pay the price for that. Um, as, far as, the, in, as far as the civil case against Rittenhouse, anybody can sue. But the decision in this case, the videotapes in this case, all of the things that we saw for those two weeks during the course of that trial make those kinds of uh, in, uh, lawsuits, in my opinion, virtually impossible to win, impossible to win. And as far as Rittenhouse suing, the answer is yes. And the guy that we were thinking about before, Phil, his name is Nicholas Sandman. He's That's the it. guy with the American, you know, with the with the Native Americans, and he sued and CNN for um, for the slander um, that that they they talked about him about whatever they said. I don't even remember what they said, but people call this kid Rittenhouse a white supremacist that he was a vigilante that he was a murderer. I mean, there were so many things, and I believe that there will be lawsuits made by Rittenhouse. I don't think they're ever going to go to trial because I think these these. These, these stations like NBC, CNN, they're going to settle. I mean, like Sandman, they said the guy settled for 200, over $200 million for that kid. So um, you just, but here's the only other thing that I was thinking about is does Rittenhouse want to do this to himself and his family all over again? Because a lawsuit is going to dredge this whole thing up again. And I can't imagine that the last year, and particularly these last two weeks, were very um, he that he, he were very calm in his household and within him. I mean, he he said last night that he's got a calm exterior, but inside he's you know he's bubbling and he's he's uh, you know it, it's really eating at him. So so you got to you know you got to take that into consideration whether or not he wants to go through this again. Personally, I would go through it again. I would I would so would go I after them and. You know, make it make it hurt in their pocketbook. That's that's what I would do. And, and I really hope that the judge follows through with that investigation on that CNBC reporter. Because let's face it, Mike, the, if somebody is messing with a jury, a president has to be set that you cannot do that. Try to intimidate that jury. 
uh, it, it could sway a case. It's wow. it, the whole criminal justice system that we believe in and that we work for that could fall apart if that continues stuff like that. Well, There's nothing more sacred than a jury in our system of justice. And I really hope that there is an arrest in that because the, according to when they stopped that reporter, he said he was sent there by a producer in New York and he even right. named her and he, the judge, I, I got to give him credit. He said that uh, for the rest of the time that uh, CNBC would not be allowed in the building, which was a great thing, but there needs to be an arrest. If whoever it was that sent them needs to be censured or arrested as well as the reporter himself, we need to protect the juries. We cannot have jury intimidation in this country or the whole system of, uh, of, of government will be gone. The whole system of our, our, uh, our criminal justice system, it'll be out the window. Well, if I was doing the investigation, what I would do first is the kid or the guy that was following the jury, I bring him in, tell him, look, this is what you're facing. But you give us the information as to who ordered you to do it, because that person is as responsible as he is. And uh, and in my opinion, more so. So I cut a deal with that guy and have him testify against the the MSNBC producers in in New York and then bring a bring a case against them. That's how I would have done it. I There's the Brooklyn prosecutor I knew. You know, you know Mike, right I, I think he was questioned and he folded like a cheap suit. He exactly. gave up the producer's name in up. about he two seconds. Exactly. So now yeah, but Mike's it. making a good point that if even though the cops they gave him a summons, they let him go. I'd say, listen, you're going to be charged, just like you said, Mike. Let's talk about uh, who sent you there. You know, yeah, giving him a summons doesn't mean that they can't now charge him for for something else, for a, 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 you know, a more serious crime. And if they hold it over his head and say to him, look, it'll go away if you testify against the person who told you to do this. Well, you know, then they've got a case. And that's something which will send a message to, you know, to the, uh, to the news media. I mean, that was outrageous. outrageous. But you know, Mike, they, they still seem to be brazenly lying. When I hear the term active shooter used with Rittenhouse. It's so ridiculous because an active shooter by definition is someone that goes to a location and indiscriminately just keeps shooting people Precisely. for no reason. This is, and you know, people, they don't know the definition. So they believe these idiots in the media that use that term active shooter, active exactly. shooter. Exactly. Listen, you know, so I, wanted, I, I just want to go back to something you were saying before in terms of intent. Think about this. If this if this kid was what what they describe, an active shooter, when he he instead of walking to the cops, he went behind a, a car and with that rifle began to pick off demonstrators with that rifle. Well, he could very well have done that, but he didn't do it because that was not his intent. If he did that, then he would have been right by, to be called an active shooter. So his intent was very clear as to what he said he was there for and what he was not there for. And him going to turn himself into the police as as opposed to turning around and becoming what these people said he was, which was, you know, this white supremacist looking to, you know, to kill people at the scene. Well, he didn't do that. And he could have. He could have. But, you know, he didn't. And you're right, Bill, to call a guy an active shooter is just a just part of the of of his lawsuit, you know, I mean, just part of his lawsuit. So. And it continues, Mike, it continues as late as th today. And last right. night they were saying things we know factually, 
factually, he did not cross state lines with that firearm. And they continue to say that. And we know factually there's no indication anywhere he was a white supremacist. But the the trial is over a few days ago, and they're still saying it, and they're repeating it. And I think, now, don't they have an obligation to report facts? Where are their producers or their editors saying, wait, we can't say that anymore. We know for a fact it's not true. This is why I believe what you said earlier, Mike, that they are going to be held liable if there is a lawsuit because they're not even ceasing the the same, you know, allegations that we know aren't true. They keep repeating them. They're calling them all these names. Exactly. What happens now is all of this stuff gets put into the pot of malice. It's absolute malice that, that they are now engaging in when they keep saying it over and over and over again. And um, if he had been a public figure, Rittenhouse, well, then he would have to prove malice in order to sue these people. That's the way it works. But he wasn't a public figure. So he has, you know, he has the ability to sue them. But now he has a better case because if for some reason some judge now says, well, you know, he's been all over the news. So he has become a public figure. Well, now he has the malice aspect of it sewn up because you're right after he's been proven not guilty they're continuing to say things that are totally untrue about him and and that will inure to their detriment a great deal in in a in a lawsuit so um you know i i say honestly let him keep doing it because i think they just bury themselves even more you know mike even from the prosecutorial thing there was another thing that they did which was totally uh, prosecutorial misconduct in regards to Rosario. They knew the name and the identity of the man that kicked them in the face. Oh, yeah. And they, they never drop gave... Man. They were referring to him as dropkick like, man. Like dropkick man. They, they never gave that information to the, the defense. They never told that they knew who the guy was. Some uh, investigator with the media said, oh, this is who the guy is. That's horrendous. Exactly. Yep, absolutely. It's just another part of the embarrassment and the horrific um, prosecutorial misconduct in this case. That has to be turned over to uh, to defense as part of discovery. So, you know. When the, defense, about, attorney, the, when the defense attorneys found out about it, they went to the judge and, and the prosecutor says, well, we'll interview this guy uh, out of, you know, w- without being on tape by ourselves. Uh, the judge says, oh, no, you won't. It's going to be taped. And then they said he asked for, Immunity from prosecution, so we're not going to give it to him. So they eliminated him to even come right. into the case because he had a tremendously lo- long criminal history. So exactly. it would have been exactly. open to, uh, to to question him about had he testified. And I guarantee you that if that little event didn't happen, the prosecution would have called them and they would not have given him immunity for uh, right. Exactly. They were and and it it was it's outrageous. What about the videotape? They turned over this videotape that could barely be seen in terms of clarity. And it turns out that they had an enhanced version, which they held until after the jury was selected, after the trial was almost over. That needed to be turned over before the trial started, before the jury selection, because the defense has the right to examine it, to look at it, to do to maybe find out who the people are who were in it and 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 have inter- and you know to, and interview them. It was it's it was a joke. It was a joke. Who who I don't even know is the the lawyer. Oh, I'm sorry. Is the district attorney for this county the DA from Milwaukee? Is he cover Kenosha? Do you know? Is he the same guy who was involved in this horrific act incident over the weekend? 
Um, I'm, I'm just not, not sure. sure what the name was, who, who it was. But whoever it is, the people of Kenosha should not uh, reelect this guy. I tell you, he was he was really bad. Yeah, he should I, be held accountable because it's his office. And he had to give the imprimatur to, go to, in, go to the grand jury, seek an indictment, and try the case the way they tried it. Um, it, it, it was it's just an outrage. Well, Mike, what, what if what if this? What if that was the grand plan? That they knew they couldn't win it, and they tried to just get it thrown out so they could look like, you know, yeah, they tried. That was, at, except that who, what were they doing? They were playing with this kid's life. What if they had if they had gotten if if Rittenhouse's attorneys were as bad as the first group he had and they didn't care about, you know, who they put on this jury and the jury said, well, you know what, um, I don't think a kid should kill three people or two people. I'm going to I'm going to find them guilty. You can't play that way, Bill, you know, but I wouldn't put it past them that this was their plan all along. It's a lousy case. Let's cover our asses. Try it. We're going to get an, a, a, an acquittal anyway. And, um, you know, and then we'll be we'll we'll be able to to face both sides. You know, we won't have an, an argument. They won't have an argument against me. But that's cowardice, in my opinion. That's, cowardice. you know, Mike, in the same vein, could you comment a little bit on the voir dire, which was, uh, you know, I think the defendant <clears throat> has the right uh, to disqualify certain people. But people think, oh, the jury was just stacked and the defendants, you know. No. Would you comment no. on that? No. Yeah, First that's of a all, good point. yes. Voir dire is prosecution gets a chance to interview the jurors. Defense gets a chance to interview the jurors. And I can speak about New York. In New York, particularly in a murder case, which this was, you have 20 challenges. Each side has 20 challenges for which you do not have to give a reason to knock a person off the jury. Then there are challenges for cause where the where if you want to challenge someone for cause, let's say the jury says, you know what, I think that guy was arrested by the cops. He's got to be guilty. Well, that's a challenge for cause and that doesn't cost anything. The guy's just disposed of from the jury. He's just taken off. But they're not it's nothing is stacked against them because the prosecutor has the right to get rid of people, just like the defense attorney has the right to get rid of people. And the misnomer is this. You don't pick a jury. You eliminate people from the jury. You don't get a chance to say, oh, that guy's great for me. I'm going to take him. That's not what happens. What happens is a guy may be good for the prosecution, and then you have to hope that the, pro and the prosecutor is not going to take him off the jury. You got to hope then that the defense doesn't knock him off. But that's not choosing the guy. That's basically not getting rid of someone. So a jury is not picked. It's, it's select. It's, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's not chosen as a prosecutor. I don't say, okay, I want this guy. I want that guy. I want this woman. I want that woman. Nor as a defendant, can I say, I want this one. I want that one. I want this one. That's not the way it works. Process of elimination. Basically That's it. you eliminate people until you get hopefully 12 jurors, who are fair and impartial. That's what the, the whole thing is about. And one thing I have to say in, if, for prosecutors, that a prosecutor's job is not to seek a conviction. A prosecutor's job is to make sure justice is done. And if justice is that this kid walks because he did not violate the law, then the prosecutor has done his job. But that's not what they were doing here. They were trying to railroad this kid with 
underhanded tactics that that thankfully the judge caught and and caught them and and slapped them down. But if this was not a sharp judge or if it was a ultra left wing judge, it would have been a completely different situation. So, you know, Mike, I got a little when I was watching some of the trial um, in the very beginning, it seemed the judge was very stern and yes. very much just staying with the law, but it's fair. But then it seemed like almost like the press and everything started getting to him too. It just seemed like that from his demeanor. I agree me. with you. I agree. And I was a little bit nervous at that. You know, like shouldn't he have called a mistrial based on all the shenanigans and the nonsense? But I yes. think he was afraid to do that. Yes, he was. The reason he didn't call a mistrial is because he was waiting for the jury to do his job for him. Right. And you've and that way he would have he look. He's nobody is saying anything about the guy now, right? No one is now complaining or saying, "Oh, the judge dismissed the case. The mistrial was was a bullshit argument." But he's did it anyway because he's a white supremacist. That's what they would have said about him. But so he waited for the twelve to say not guilty, and therefore he now is off the hook. That's a that's also cowardly, quite frankly. Judges who are who are who do their job properly should have stopped that trial when that guy, when that prosecutor started to insinuate that silence means that you're guilty. That ends it. That's the end. And you know what happens then, guys? If that's what the prosecutor did, the case is over because jeopardy attached. The mistrial is caused by the prosecution's intentional act. Done. And that's the end of it. Double jeopardy. So you, you move on. I got to make one point about the jury. Now, I'm sure that you guys might, may have seen this if you're watching the trial. At the end, there were 16 jurors. He had to pick four to be removed from the jury. And they did like, uh, uh, they put the the numbers in, a, in a, a wheel and he pulled them out. The lawyer said, those were the four jurors that we loved because it looked like they were paying attention to the whole yeah. thing. They were taking notes and stuff. So they those were the jurors they wanted to keep on on the on the jury for the uh, for the decision. However, they weren't, and they still got the acquittal. Exactly because it was so clear. That's that's something which I had never seen before. In New York, you have fourteen jurors most of the time, fourteen or sixteen, and the twelve that are first picked are the twelve that 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 judge the case. The other alternates step aside, and for the most part, are dismissed once the evidence is completed by the defense, because if God forbid something happened to one of the jurors, well, the defendant then gets another shot because there has to be a mistrial. If there was a, if there was a, a um, an alternate around, they would put the alternate in. So I had never seen that before. And uh, you know, where the, the defendant picks out out of a hat face essentially, or out of that drum, the 12 people, but it's a good point, Phil. If the lawyer did say that, that he, that the four that he picked to be dismissed were, um, or the four that were dismissed were good yeah. jurors for the prosecution. But I mean, for the defense. For the defense. Yeah. But you know, you know, Mike, I just wanted to bring this to light because again, the media made it look like there was a lot of uh, unfairness by both the judge and the jury process. No. And I, I mean, you explained it beautifully. Not, and, not at all. There was no underhanded tactics by the prosecution, uh, I'm sorry, by the defense and the judge. They were not in cahoots. In fact, Bill, in the beginning, you're correct. I thought the judge was leaning towards the prosecution side. I thought that his rulings 
were, you know, were, were going that way. But he did kind of straighten out a little bit. And if you remember correctly, towards the end, he started to actually admonish the prosecutor for the things that he was doing, you know, in terms of that silence thing, the fact that he he had um, he didn't turn over information, didn't turn over the video, you know, that witness who they held back. Um, so I, I think that as time went on, this judge, as the evidence developed, saw that, oh, my God, this is this is almost an open and shut case. And, you know, the prosecution was basically throwing Hail Marys at the end, you know, in terms yeah. of of hoping for that uh, for that touchdown, which. But, they, you know, Mike, in retrospect, in, in I think it probably was a good thing that he let the jury decide it. Oh, even yeah. though us as New Yorkers are like, why is he just throwing this out? But no, I, I think it was true. probably a good call that he made. Let the jury decide. It. And if the jury doesn't decide it correctly, I'm going to throw it out because of all of this nonsense. Well, if that's what he had in mind, then, then I agree with you. But I, I've been in front of. I've been in front of judges and in front of juries that, man, you can't ever tell what they're what they're doing. I, I just tell a very quick story. I had a, ju- a, a case. It was really a, not that great a case. And I was a prosecutor. I was a young prosecutor. And, um, and every day the jury would come into the jury, into the into the courtroom. As the prosecution, you sit close to the jury box. The foreperson was a good looking young woman. She would come out every single morning smilingly sat, say, good morning. How are you? Nod, etc. It got to the point that the defense attorney grabbed me one day as we were coming back from lunch. And he said to me, Hey, you got something going with that, with that, <laughs> that, uh, that four person. She is, she's like, she wants to take you home. Time goes on. Jury goes into the, into deliberate. It starts to snow. And the judge, I say to the judge, did they have a window in the jury room? He goes, yeah. I said, man, we're done. We're done. They're not going to stick around and wait for the for a snowstorm. Well, shortly after that, they come in. It's an acquittal, right? I'm a prosecutor, so it's a bad thing. I go down to the first floor of the courthouse. The jury is there looking, waiting for me to come down. They all want to say, you know, you did a great job. It was a tough, let me tell you, it was a really tough case. You did a great job. And they said to me, but I got it. We got to tell you. You know who the person who was the most against you, who led the charge against conviction? The foreperson, the one who used to say, smile at me every morning and 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 nod and give me, and who the defense attorney thought was on my side. So you can't ever tell, guys. You can't, nothing is a given with a jury, you know? Right, so, right. Uh, you know, there are lots of lots of things that that are are thought of, about, you know, you you, you misconstrued in a case you, you a smile can be thought of to be one thing when it turns out to be another you know a nod here or there you can't do that you can't do that so but in this case guys there was no no underhanded tactics believe me mike i got to make a point about something you said earlier and i really really appreciate it and i think it's important you said that the prosecutor's job is not so much to prosecute but for justice and i That's can correct. remember being involved in a case back in like 2006 with tom ridges who was actually a retired NYPD sergeant yeah, i know tom very well 
And on this particular case, after we were going through some things where one of the witnesses had to testify, he looked at me and he said, some cases are just made to be tried and lost. Correct. And he accepted it. And that's exactly what happened. The person was acquitted. It was a, it was a murder case, but the, the guy at the grand jury only got indicted for insult one. And uh, he knew that justice had to be served. There was a political component to it. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but I think that's very important. Great point that you made, Mike. Thank you very much for that. Guys, we're at uh, we're at an hour and 11 minutes. I just promised Mike I'd give him some plugs here. Uh, of course, this is the book by uh, Mike Vecchioni and Tommy Dades uh, with David Fisher involving uh, Louis Ippolito and uh, uh, Caracappa, Steve Caracappa, the Mafia Cops. Great book. I read the book. This book should undoubtedly be a movie with me getting a part in it. And with Phil, too, with Phil, too. I'll do some technical work. <laughs> here's another uh, a book by uh, Michael Vecchioni, Crooked Brooklyn, Taking Down Corrupt Judges, Dirty Politicians, Killers. And that was that one was about them selling body parts, right? Yeah, the body snatchers part was about a dentist who had lost his license. And to make money, he was stealing um, bone and tissue out of cadavers for use as implant um, uh, for an implant's. Um, and he was, um, he didn't care how we got them. He didn't care how they died. The people died of communicable diseases. They died of, uh, hepatitis. They, they were like 90 something years old. And, and imagine getting a 97 and 98 year old bone as a piece of pl- a transplant in your body. And he was doing it because he was, um, he, he needed the money and he That's lost, true. ultimately lost his license because he was addicted to Demerol and he fell asleep, guys, in the middle of an of a transplant operation on someone's mouth. He fell oh. asleep in the middle of it. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back and he lost his license. And then he went to when he went to this and he started taking uh, body body parts out of a body uh, snatcher. Yeah, he could. He cut a deal with various funeral directors around Brooklyn to tip them off when they had a body. That uh, that had, uh, you know, someone had was coming into their funeral home so he could have at it first. And he would they would cut the body open. They'd steal all of the bone and tissue and then sew it up again. But to make it look like it had still had bone in it, they put PVC pipe in there. They put garbage sometimes, bags of garbage (laughs) and sewed it up. So it was a it was a it's a it's a it was a horrific case. Desecrating the body only in Brooklyn. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. And murder by the bridge? Murder on the bridge. Murder on the bridge. Though you might remember this case. This was a young Hasidic girl who was lived in Williamsburg who was doing exercise, walking over the bridge, actually at this time of year, around Hanukkah. And she was set upon by a guy who I believe was the devil incarnate. He killed her, and she had no money on her, of course. And he strangled her, made it look like it was a sex crime, stripped her of her clothes, but that wasn't enough. He came back that night and doused her with gasoline and set her on fire, set her body on fire. The only thing left were her teeth and a shoe. Oh, and a piece of her bra clasp. Um, and the reason I say that he was the devil incarnate is because of this. And previous to this, he had a he had his best friend who used to take care of him, let him sleep in his house, feed him, give him all kinds of, uh, of clothing, take care of him. And he needed money because he was a junkie. And he and another person killed his best friend in his apartment. And um, that led to his downfall. The cops were arresting him for that. They picked up his girlfriend. And in the police car, 
She said, so are you guys looking for him for that little girl he did on the bridge? And the cop mm. turned around, the detective from Brooklyn North, and said, what are you talking about? We're here about the best friend. And they realized that they finally had the killer of this of this little girl. So it was a great case. It was a great. And he was, what a piece of work. What a piece of work. And talk about getting on a witness stand. That's a guy, gentlemen, who should never never have gotten on the witness stand. Never. He gave a complete statement on videotape, detailed. And when he got on the stand, he changed everything, said they made me say that the cops made me say it, this, you know, all of that stuff. And, um, but I got to tell you one little story about it. When he, he said during the course of his, of his statements to the detectives that he was almost happy that he got caught because he could never sleep from, from that time on, from the time he killed the girl, he couldn't sleep because she kept appearing to him in his dreams and she was like haunting him. So he got on the stand, he lied his ass off. And I stood up and I just simply said to him, his name was Raymond Vargas. I said, um, Raymond, did she come to you last night? Was she in your dreams last night? He, he literally started shaking on the, on the stand and, um, I knew I had him at that it's point. Over from there. Oh, it was all downhill. So it was. You know, Mike, uh, Joe Murray, who's a fellow attorney, he says, Mr. Vecchioni, why aren't you running for Brooklyn DA? We need you. Let's bring back law and order. Enough with prosecutors refusing to prosecute. Uh, I know. I know. I live in Queens, though. So it's hard to run uh, as a Brooklyn <laughs> DA. And, um, he wants you in the political arena, Mike. That's yeah, there we go. Down, there we though. go. Okay. Lay well, Shell, thanks for the 499 Super Chat. You guys are primo. Great show tonight. I love me some Mike and Bill and Phil. And we forgot Tommy Dades, but Tommy Dades sometimes gets shy, you know, and he yeah. wasn't. There was, there was a few people in the him. audience wanted to see Tommy Dades tonight. I was like, hey, he's taking the night off, you know. He but, is, uh, he is. but he's watching. So I asked him to come on and he says, no, he goes, Mike, you're going to have Mike. You. That's enough. You know, blah, blah, blah. so he's he's good. Listen, I love Tom. He's one yeah, of my so friends. I. All right, uh, Philly, Philly, we're at we're at too much time. We, uh, Philly, yeah. last words. Last words, real quick, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on. I think you brought some tremendous expertise to this case that we've been talking about, the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And coming from you, I really respect that. I know you. You were a tremendous prosecutor in Brooklyn. And like uh, Bill said, you know, Brooklyn is it's Brooklyn, New York, you know, so yep. thank you very much. And hopefully we're going to have you on again. It would uh, love to have you on when uh, some one of these other cases pop. A anytime. And, and my last words are thank you to both of you and happy Thanksgiving to you and yes. to both of you guys and to all your viewers. This was a pleasure. I really like it. And I do hope you have me back. You know, I Mike, I, I was just going to say that I, I would love to have you back. I don't even think we scratched the surface of your knowledge and even talking about some of your great cases, you know, I'd love to. I'll even bring up pictures of you where you can reminisce yeah, about wow. when you were, when you were a younger man there with, with Hines, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll pull yep. up some pictures. Oh, Joe Ponzi, that pit was in that yeah, pit. Ponzi was in that one. Too. That's my man, Joe, who's. Uh, Which one is that? Go back. Another one. Right there. there. Oh, okay. Okay. That's left. Joe Ponzi, the man. I love that guy. Right. Great guy. I, I, I'd love to come back. And, you know, Crooked Brooklyn is about my time as the chief of rackets. And um, three judges, a couple of politicians, all gone to jail as a result of our work. So, um, and I say our work because. I was just going to point that out. Yeah, I don't, I don't take credit alone. All the guys and women who worked on the cases with me deserve as much credit as 
as uh, as actually more than than I can possibly give them. So, um, but I'd be happy to come back and uh, and one other, one little one last little plug. I have a new book coming out. It'll be out in the spring. It's called Homicide Is My Business, and it's about a, a mafia, a, a Sicilian zip who comes to the United States um, as a result of Carmine Galante wanting protection for taking over and expanding the drug operation in Williamsburg with the Bananos. And um, he is a hitman that you have never, you, you, you wouldn't believe the kind of guy he was and what he wound up being involved in. He wound up testifying in front of Congress, uh, in front of uh, President Reagan's Commission on Organized Crime. But that literally just scratches the surface as to what he's about. He only killed people who deserved to be killed, he said. And I, he himself didn't do it. The guy that hired him to do it was the killer. He only pulled the trigger. So that's a little <laughs> taste of what um, that's great about. So anyway, um, maybe you'll have me back and I can. Mike, well, I will definitely have you back. You have an open invitation. We, you know, Thank we you. like to marry our guests with like a national story. And even, I mean, even when your book comes out, I will definitely have you on. You can plug your book. That'd be a, a great thing. Anyway, folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh, I know sometimes I see in the chat, there's a lot of people that don't agree with us. And you know something? We are, uh, politic, we are Politically, we are conservative. What do you think? We're cops. You know what I mean? We're not going to be progressives. And you know something? There's other podcasts if you don't like us. But uh, this is what we are. And uh, all you people that support Police Off the Cuff, thank you so much. And I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving, happy and healthy, and enjoy time with your family and your friends. Guys, good night, everyone. Thank Stay you, guys. And happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And subscribe. One episode, just ain't enough.